Good morning. Good morning. I tell you what. <clears throat> Have you been enjoying Luke? When we knew that we were going to have to take over the role of preaching on a regular basis, there was kind of, well, you know, you know, when you have one person preaching, there's always continuity, but when you have a lot of people preaching, you're not necessarily going to have good continuity. But I think the Bible has done a fairly good job of bringing it together, don't you? I think Luke has provided us with an amazing continuity. And I want you to understand, I've tried several times in the past to get you to understand the work involved in writing a sermon, the hours and hours it takes. Not only to study, but then to prayer, to prepare, write, edit, practice. And then there are the slides. In the past, when I've done slides, I've spent probably five or six hours just doing slides. I've been rather busy. This is your slide. <laughs> just saying. Luke 22. We changed our schedule around a bit so that we could have communion when we came to Luke 22. Because in Luke, this is the chapter that deals with the Lord's Supper. But it doesn't just deal with the Lord's Supper. Luke 22 deals with the issue repeatedly over and over and over again of betrayal. I have a story that I heard. I don't know if it's true or apocryphal. But a daughter of the chief of staff from Loma Linda University years and years ago was getting married. The crowd was in place, the congregation there, the attendants were on the stage, the groom was on the stage, the bride came through the doors, down the aisle, escorted by her father who was the chief of staff. The bride kissed her father and then rather than turning to the groom who had walked down the steps, she turned away from the groom and faced the audience and said, by the way, picture this in your mind. By the way, there's not going to be a wedding today. Last night, my fiancé slept with one of my bridesmaids. And her father took her arm and they walked back out. I love that story. It's a story of ultimate betrayal. I mean, let's face it, that is a, a huge issue of betrayal, but there is such justice, I love justice, of leaving him standing there looking at the entire congregation, knowing what a schmuck he was. In Luke 22, the chapter kicks off with Judas deciding to betray Jesus. He's gone to the priest to make a deal, and we often think of this as the ultimate betrayal. Betrayed by the inner circle, by a close friend, a confidant, someone who at least seems to be a close friend, and we find these words in Luke 22. 
Now the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. And he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over them when no crowd was present. Now the Passover is one of the great festivals of the Jewish nation. It celebrated God's saving them from slavery in Egypt. On the night of the escape from Egypt, the Israelites were to eat clothed, shoes on, ready to move. Animals were to be sacrificed. They had to be perfect, no defects. Blood sprinkles over the doorposts and the bread made without yeast. This festival is where Jesus chose to betray Jesus. An event marking the freedom from slavery from Egypt and pointing to a greater freedom that God would give us. So how is it that Satan entered Judas? What took place in his mind? We often ask the question, what were you thinking? Have you ever heard that one? What were you thinking? Well, obviously people are thinking it's a good idea because they did that, right? Or they were thinking they weren't going to get caught. So Judas was evidently thinking something. What took place in his mind is he really did love Jesus in his own way. He loved the possibilities. He loved that Jesus would raise as king. He lo- reign as king. He loved that Jesus would be a mover and shaker. And he loved the idea that if he just gave Jesus a little nudge, he would tip the balance and usher into the world the kingdom of the Jewish nation. He made things happen. That's what he did. And Ellen White points out, paints a picture of Jesus working to place Jesus on the throne while still advancing his own designs. He could place Jesus on the throne and make a little money while doing it. Win-win. Right? Win-win. And surely once Jesus was on the throne, he would recognize his wonderful mechanizations which had made all the difference and he would be rewarded. The betrayal continues. Shortly after they had shared the bread and the wine, the disciples betrayed Jesus, all of them, in the middle of the Passover feast. Because they begin arguing about who was going to become the greatest. Christ has shared this meal. Remember separating two things, looking back to the freedom from slavery in Egypt, looking forward to the freedom from sin. Christ is looking through this meal to the cross and they betray him by arguing about who is going to be the most important. Who will get to make the big decisions? Who will be in charge of foreign affairs? Who will control the treasury? Who will command the armies? Who will get to conquer the lands? Who will have the statues made of them? And Luke packs all of this into a single sentence. In Luke 22, verse 24, he says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Betrayal. Moving on in the chapter of betrayal, we find Jesus predicts 
Peter's betrayal. He goes straight at Peter, but not as a way to squish him, but as a way to point out that in the end, Jesus still loved Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked you to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, and that your faith may not fail. And that when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He doesn't say if you've turned back. He doesn't say you might turn back. He says when you have turned back. Because Jesus knew Peter's heart. He knew at the heart of the betrayal that Peter was going to perpetrate here, Peter still loved him. And he was pointing that out to Peter even before. The betrayals continue. We find in Gethsemane, Christ is suffering with the weight of our sins, the weight of my sin. And the disciples closest to Him, in fact, all of the disciples, fall asleep. Luke tells us they were exhausted from grief or sorrow or regret, the word in the Greek means. And in verse 45, he says, when he arose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. They were just arguing about who was going to be greatest. Christ is facing the ultimate sacrifice, death on a cross. Were they regretting all of their pettiness? Did they begin to see, remembering their arguing and fighting for position, everything they had missed? Did they finally realize that all of their small betrayals along the way, and now their hearts were broken and they were suffering, and they were exhausted from grief? I know a bit about grief. It's exhausting. It beats you down. Is that what beat the disciples down, that they were so exhausted from sorrow that they fell asleep? And yet in the act of their falling asleep from sorrow and grief, they betray Him when He needs them most. But wait, the betrayal of Luke 22 does not stop. Next we find Judas betraying, betraying Jesus with a kiss. Again, the ultimate picture of betrayal. And the disciples still didn't understand what was happening. One of them whoops out of swords and cuts off a servant's ear. The other ten disciples at this point flee. Peter follows along at a distance because earlier he had just said, wait, 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 Lord, everyone else may leave you, but I'm willing to die and go to prison for you. No, Peter, you're not. As a matter of fact, you're going to be in big trouble because you're going to betray me three times. No, I'd never do that. Peter betrays Jesus by disowning him. So let's be clear here, disowning him. He acts like he doesn't know Jesus personally. It would be like me saying, well, yeah, I know who Jerry Chinnick is, but I don't hang around him. I mean, he's a jerk. <laughs> who does he think? I mean, yeah, he's, oh, he's a terrible guy. Yeah, oh, he's a scumbag. I mean, that's what it would be like 
as opposed to me saying, you know what, I love Jerry. Jerry, he's a good man. Peter had that opportunity. Hey, didn't you know him? Yeah, I know him. He's one of my good friends. Does Peter say that? No. Each time more vehemently he denies knowing Jesus. And then there's the actions of the temple guards, which through their actions, humanity betrays Jesus. And the betrayal continues. We find the church leadership betraying Jesus. Of course, we know that happened at the very beginning of the chapter. They were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. This wasn't the first time, though. They were trying to save the church, to purify the church, to return the church to what it stood for. Repeatedly, they did this. In Luke 6, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely, but they were continually afraid of the people. In Luke 19, every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. In Luke 20, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because he had spoken against them, but they were afraid of the people. And the teachers of the law here in Luke 22 were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. Luke 22, a chapter of betrayal. Hmm. So how, do, how did Judas, how do I, like Judas, take God's designs and make them mine? Seeking to be in control. How do I try to make myself look good for position and power? by doing good things? How do I try to place Christ on the throne that I have created? Not the throne of my heart, not the throne of the universe, but the throne of my plans and my purposes. When have I, like the disciples, tried to place myself at the top of the heap? After all, I think all of us are like this. We like being in charge of what's going on. Have you ever been in a group where the group is tasked with doing something and the person in charge doesn't have a clue? All organizations are currently fighting two things. Artificial intelligence and natural stupidity. And there are a lot of times when I think I qualify for both. We like being able to direct where we're going and what's happening. I'm a control freak. I'll admit it. I don't like it when things happen that I cannot control. I've worked hard. I proved myself as a soldier and was recognized for it. I proved myself as a pastor and was recognized for it. I proved myself 
by getting into dental school. 1,755 applicants, 105 seats. I proved myself in dental school. I was the only student to receive all three Student of the Year awards. I was asked by two departments, the Oral Surgery Department and the Ortho Department, to do residencies. I didn't have to apply. They were asking me. Monica now, she said I could do that, but I'd have to do it with a different wife because she said after four years she was done. I proved myself as a business owner. I proved myself that I want to be at the top just like the disciples arguing before Jesus after He had washed their feet, after they had shared their last meal. They were wanting to be in control. They were wanting to be at the top. But life does not always participate like that. And when I dislocated the working finger for the dentist, eh, it made life a little bit interesting for me. Now what do I do? I wasn't in control anymore. When Christopher died, I'm not in control anymore. And when we're so used to placing ourselves on top and to being in control ourselves instead of releasing control, that if all we're doing is placing ourselves and trying to be in control when something happens, when life is not fair, guess what? We have nowhere to go and nothing to do. How do you and I do that? How have you, we, you and I, like the disciples, disciples fallen asleep when we should have been watching. When as Jesus was praying for me, when have I fallen asleep? When have I been consumed by my own grief and taken my eyes off of Jesus? To try standing on my own and so fallen in my grief and regret? When have I tried to win my own salvation by proving to God that I'm good enough and in doing so denying my salvation and my need of a Savior? When have I sought to distance myself from Jesus because I didn't want to speak up for Him? When have I forgotten or intentionally chosen to remember that none of this stuff that I have actually belongs to me? Not my talent, not the things in my garage or my house or my bank accounts. None of it is mine. And yet at times we intentionally forget. And who am I to say that if I don't get my way, I'm not going to support the church with my offering or my tithe or my time? And time really is the only thing that we are in control of. What do we do with our time? And when have I, like the church leaders in Christ's day, placed church traditions and conventions over love? When have I sought to protect the church by being rigid, citing church policy and position, even though those policies and positions have no true scriptural basis? When have I defended a rule at the cost of distancing a fellow child of God? What will it take for me to, def to defend the cause of the fatherless, to protect the rights of the weak, 
to stand against social injustice inside and outside the church. What will it take for me to place the importance on people and not policy? How does our continual betrayal of Jesus affect forgiveness? Does it change God's mind? Does God stand back and say, okay, enough, we're done? The way the bride did in our story? God calls us to come no matter what we've done and find healing and sight and life. God calls us to eat the bread of life and to drink the wine of forgiveness. In the midst of betrayal, Jesus stops the crowd and heals. In the midst of betrayal, Jesus reminds Peter that he is loved. In the midst of betrayal, Jesus in the garden says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, communion is about healing. It's about owning our betrayals and accepting the healing that God offers. It is God's reminder to us that He can change us. We cannot change ourselves. It is God's reminder to us that He forgives freely. It is God's reminder to us that He has won and all we need to do is open our hands and accept. The foot washing is a gentle reminder of what Christ does for us daily. Now, there are times in our lives when we need a full scrub down. I can remember Brandon and Erica after basketball games. Yeah. Windows were rolled down on the way home. Timothy. There are times on Sunday mornings when it's 4,000 degrees outside and you have all the yard work you have to do and you are sweaty and grimy and dirty when you need a full scrub down. There are times coming back from a wagon trip when you need, really need, a full scrub down. But there are also times getting up and going to work where we get in the shower, wash our hair, and just get dressed. The communion is a reminder of what God does. The foot washing is a reminder of what God does. That God is the one who cleanses us. God is the one who stands as our servant and heals our wounds. At this time, we're going to be separating for the foot washing ceremony. If you've never done this, this is something that the Seventh-day Adventist Church participates in three times a year, where we follow Christ's example, where in John, he tells us, he took off his robe, wrapped the towel around his waist, and washed the disciples' feet. It's a reminder that one, one, we're really not that important. 
And two, that God does amazing things for us. We'll separate at this time. When Esau met Joseph, even though Jacob, I mean, when Esau met Jacob, sorry, Jacob, even though Esau was, Jacob was terrified of Esau, Esau opened his arms wide and embraced Jacob. When Joseph greeted his brothers, when his brothers were terrified of him, Joseph welcomed them with arms wide open and embraced them. When the father saw his son, even though the son was embarrassed and humiliated and terrified of his father's reactions, the father welcomed him with arms wide open and embraced him. When God welcomed sinful humanity back to Himself, He did it with arms wide open, but not, not in the physical embrace. For His arms were wide open, nailed to a cross, and He was embracing our sin, accepting our shame, and hugging our deserved death to Himself so that we can live. Hours before the cross, knowing what he was going to go through, he gave us a vision of a feast. The sharing of bread and wine one last time before he embraced the world's sin, and a reminder that he would not share this again until he could share it with us. And at that time, He will embrace us with arms wide open and give us the greatest hug in the world. Read with me. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he took the bread and gave thanks to God, broke it and gave thanks to them saying, or gave it to them saying, this is my body which is for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is God's new covenant, sealed with my blood. Do so in memory of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until He comes.